Revelation 3, we'll read verses 14 through 22. That will be our text for this evening. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so the reading of God's Word, again, let us pray. Lord, we thank You for this letter to the Laodiceans, the church at that town, and we pray that Your Spirit would speak to us tonight. For Your glory we pray, and in the name of Jesus, Amen. You may be seated. Well, this evening we do come to the last of the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. And as we do come to the letter written to the church at Laodicea, I remind you that these were actual historical churches. You know, the Roman roads were constructed well before the coming of Christ. And during that 400 silent years we talk about between the Old and New Testaments and all in God's providence, as we referred to this morning in Galatians 4.4, 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. And so there was the Roman roads that provided the quick spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was the Roman protection from the soldiers on those roads and so forth. And so eventually the gospel made its way to this town, in Laodicea. And uh, Laodicea was in what is today known as Turkey. It was near Ephesus. It was near Colossae, those towns where there were other churches of Jesus Christ, and you recognize those names because of the New Testament epistles named after them. Well, as we come to this letter, it, like so many of the other ones, is a sobering letter. Um, It is a letter written to a church that had become worldly, that was in spiritual decline, where Jesus is found outside knocking on the door waiting to get in to sup and to dine with His people there. There's nothing praiseworthy that the Lord says about these Christians at Laodicea. And yet, it is not a church without hope. As I hope you'll see a little later, maybe that comes as a surprise, but this letter does present hope to those who were and are in this spiritual condition. And so as we think about that, we'll note that This letter of Jesus was written to a church that was on the precipice of apostasy. Again, a corrupt church. And yet, 
a church that would receive words of grace from our Lord. So let's see what he says here to this church and uh, what his message was to them, what the message is for us today. We have here his introduction there in verse 14. It says, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, there is a uh, Hebraic or Hebrew way of speaking here, the, the amen, the faithful and true witness there. And uh, that goes back even to the Old Testament. And the amen is that which is true, the faithful and true. And it is perhaps to Isaiah 65, verses 16 and 17, that our Lord Jesus goes back and refers to, as he calls himself, the amen, the faithful and true witness. And that Old Testament prophet, Isaiah 65, it is where um, the God of truth is referred to and the coming of Christ, his first coming, his appearance is the catalyst, or would be the catalyst of the new creation, the beginning of the new creation. And so as Jesus pronounces himself as the amen, the faithful and true witness, he comes to this church, the Laodicean church, as the one who can only rightfully assess them, who can only truly assess what is going on in their hearts. And he is the faithful witness, the true witness about them. And also, if he is the one who brings about the new creation, you know, through his death, burial, and resurrection power, then it is through the Lord Jesus that they would be able to apply the remedy that he will prescribe to them later in this letter. And so then, here's the faithful and true assessment of our Lord Jesus, and it is through him that one receives the power to change according to what he prescribes here. And so he says there again about himself, he is the one who is the beginning of the creation of God. He is outside of creation. He is the one who has brought about the creation through the word of his power. And so there's this indictment there in verse 16, or rather verse 15. Jesus brings these startling words to us even this evening. It says there, I know your works. And remember that when Jesus says, I know your works, he comes as the one who is all-knowing, the second person of the Godhead, omniscient. But when he refers to their works, he's giving this evaluation. Are their works up to par? Are they meeting his standard? Are they being faithful witnesses in that location where he has placed them? And so that will be the question for them. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. What does he mean by that? Perhaps you have your own thoughts. If you've heard sermons on this text, and I, I can recall years ago hearing a sermon on it, and uh, uh, the preacher talked about a, a Coca-Cola. You know, you'd rather have an ice-cold Coke or maybe a warm Coke, but not a lukewarm Coke. Well, I don't think so. But um, what, what is he talking about here? I mean, coffee, we like hot, some hot drinks, some drinks we like cold, but we don't like lukewarm or tepid drinks. Well, he says you're neither hot nor cold, nor or rather cold nor hot. So Laodicea had two neighboring cities that are significant in this. One is Her Heropolis and the other is, as I said earlier, Colossae. 
Hierapolis was known for its warm springs, its hot springs. They were used for medicinal purposes. They thought that uh, they brought about healing. And then in Colossae, they enjoyed this pristine uh, water source, which basically was the snow melt by the surrounding mountains that came down. And, uh, you know, today they would have sold their bottled water, as, as one has put it. It reminds me of where I used to live in central California, the water um, that much of California, if not most, received was from the snow melt from the Sierra uh, snow caps, the Sierra Nevada Mountains. And um, that's the way it was in Colossae. So you, you had the, the warm spring water nearby, and you had the um, pristine water from the snow melt nearby as well. But in Laodicea, they did not have their own water source. They had to pipe it in, and uh, today there's supposedly remnants of the, I guess, clay pipes they used to bring in this water from a mile or so away, which is pretty impressive. Back in that day, they could do that. But like that water that I drank from in California, we didn't really get so much the snow melt. That made its way all the way to Southern California. Where I lived, we had six wells that went as far as 1,000, 1,200 feet deep. And by the time you go that deep and dig up the water, the water has this very terrible smell of sulfur. It does not taste good. It has sediment. It has to be filtered multiple times. And guess what? That's the way it was with the water at Laodicea. By the time it arrived, it had gone through all that piping and had all that sediment. It was a foul-smelling water. And so Jesus is using the imagery that they were very familiar with. And he says, you're not hot, you're not cold, but you're lukewarm, you're tepid. Just like that water they brought in was foul and just like it was lukewarm by the time it got to them, so too were they to the Lord Jesus. And so then if you look there at verse 16, he says, so then, because you are lukewarm, And neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I mean, that's something maybe startling for a new Christian to think about and to hear that uh, Jesus, there are are churches that make Jesus nauseated. I will vomit you, I'll spew you out of my mouth. Well, what kind of church puts Jesus in this condition? Well, he says in verse 17, because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. This was a self-complacent church. Again, a prideful church. And as Jesus notes here, ignorant church. What was going on? Well, again, a little bit of the history and background of Laodicea can help us understand what was going on with these Christians at this church. Laodicea, like some of the other churches in Revelation, was placed in a very affluent location. Uh, There were three great highways that came together, and so people brought their goods into this area. They set up shop and there was much trade that went on there. There was a bank that 
operated there. And so they had much wealth. It was very, very affluent, we are told. I mean, Ephesus, a city that had about 200,000 people nearby, had its own um, Colosseum. A city of 200,000 had its own Colosseum. Well, Laodicea, a town of 40,000, less than half of Ephesus, had two Colosseums. So that was their claim to fame. They had theaters in the town. They had, again, stadiums, gymnasiums. And if that's not enough, all of these were equipped with baths. That was a luxury back then. They had uh, wool that they um, sold, manufactured. They had this ISAF for which they were famous. They even had a school of medicine that specialized in helping those with weak eyes. And I say they were wealthy. They were so wealthy, we are told, that um, even though in AD 16, I think it was, there was this uh, earthquake in the area that leveled the city. When the Roman government offered to give them financial aid to repair and rebuild the city, they said, we've got this. We'll handle it with our own funds. And they did. So do you see what's going on here? This was a worldly church. Uh, Perhaps they started off well. They were a legitimate church. They believed the gospel. And yet they had succumbed to the spirit of the age around them. They could have anything they wanted. They were happy, they thought. They were knowledgeable. They knew how to do things. How to conduct business. They wore... No doubt the latest fashion, whatever that was, whatever cloak or tunic that was back then. And yet, Jesus says, you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I believe these Christians allowed their affluence and their riches to crowd out their relationship with the Lord Jesus. And so then you see Jesus' admonition there in verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve. You see, now you understand why he mentions these things. That you may see. And so here's the Lord's prescription for them. Here's His admonition to them. That they buy what He offers. I mean, they had the markets there. They had shops of all kinds there. But Jesus is now telling them to come up and step up to His shop. You need what I have. Buy this. First of all, gold refined by fire. And Before I expound on that, Is Jesus here teaching works salvation? He says to purchase, come buy something. And these are things, as we'll see, they belong to Him. Well, if you are familiar with Isaiah, you will know what the prophet said, what God says through the prophet there in Isaiah 55. It says in verse 1, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come 
buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without honey and without price. Why do you spend your money on what is not bread and your wages for that which does not satisfy you? There's the same thing. God, Jehovah God, is calling His people back to come back to Him. They've departed. They've become worldly and so forth. Come and buy what you need, what I have, that which will satisfy you. Come and buy it without money. And here, Jesus, He tells these New Testament Christians the same thing. Come and buy these things from Me. Gold refined in the fire. You study gold in Scripture in this way, refined in the fire. I, I think ultimately what Jesus is getting at is come and get and obtain godly character. The gold that has been refined. Through trials, no doubt. But ultimately it comes from Him. It comes from His hand. It refers to purity and so forth. And the end result will be that they can and will be a godly Christ-like testimony in Laodicea. Because when you look at these Christians and you look at the non-Christians in Laodicea, they all look alike. And don't hear me wrong, as I hope I'll say in a moment, it's not a sin to have wealth. And ladies, it doesn't mean that you have to wear a potato sack to be godly. But the point is, that there should be a difference. And that difference ultimately will be in attitudes, it will be in character, and also priorities as Jesus teaches here. So he mentions the gold refined by fire. Also his white garments. This shows a need for covering. This will refer to the righteousness of Christ later in Revelation. And then he talks about this eye salve that he has. Well, it says that you may see. This anointing. And I think the Holy Spirit is... Um, connected with this because it is the Spirit who gives us new eyes. It is the Spirit, John 14, John 16, who is our teacher. And He uses the Word of God to teach us. And so now Jesus is calling them to Himself that they may have a proper perspective of themselves and those around them and their situation. And by the way, these things that Jesus mentions here, uh, the gold... Uh, his white garments, the ISAB, these all relate to the vision of Christ in chapter 1 where he is the one who is girded with the golden band where his head and his hair are like wool and his eyes are like a flame of fire. And so all of these things point to the necessity and exclusivity of the Lord Jesus Christ. We get what we actually need for our lives, what satisfies us from Jesus himself. In verse 19, we learn more of His grace. He says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Why is Jesus saying these hard things to this congregation? Why is He rebuking them and chastening them? Because He loves them. You know, it's like Hebrews, isn't it? The Lord chastens those. He disciplines those whom... He loves like a father, a good father, like a father does his children. You know, if you have a true friend and your true friend sees that you're headed in the wrong direction, your true friend will say something. And if your true friend does not, I'm guessing your true friend will later come to you and say, I should have said something. 
Well, Jesus here tells us that he is the friend of friends in that he rebukes and chastens those whom he loves. Therefore, he says, be zealous and repent. You know, have a, a hotness and warmness and, and be on fire for these things. Have your hearts in it and repent. Right? That they were lukewarm, they were tepid. But now he caused them to be zealous. So they're to turn from their spiritual indifference that he'll expand on even more in a moment. And he caused them to have a holy zeal and fire for the things of God. For his things, the things that are near and dear to him. And so we see the Lord's grace in sending this letter and speaking even these hard words. So we have the invitation in verse 20. Before I read it, yes, this verse has been abused. This verse has been taken out of context. But let me give you a warning that just because that's the case, that it has been abused, not to take this verse seriously. Because these are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, Behold, step back, take note. I stand at the door and knock. He's not in the congregation. You would think in a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the church of the Good Shepherd, in the church of the Redeemer, in the church of the Lord Jesus, whatever the name might be, that Jesus would be in there. And He is not. He is outside knocking. What's going on? Well, in their pursuit of personal and financial gain, they had crowded out the Lord Jesus from their own lives and their own hearts. So what does He say? He says, If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. That's the invitation. If you hear his voice, if you hear it and act upon it and open the door, he will come in. So Christ invites his people to come in and fellowship with him. Remember in biblical times, that eating a meal together was one of the highest forms and expressions of fellowship. So it is with with many, if not all of us here tonight. And so as we think about what Jesus is saying here, I'll ask the question, what is the key to spiritual vitality? What is the key to Christian zeal? It is fellowship. It is communion. It is dining and having dinner with Jesus. What does that mean? How do you do that? Well, Jesus tells us in John 15. 
You know, he tells us there, he says there, you can't bear fruit unless you abide in him. And he and you, and we abide in him, and he abides in us by what means? The means of his word. If my words abide in you. He tells us there in John 15, and he talks about his love being in us and his commandments and so forth. And then once we do all that, when he abides in us fully, when we abide in his word and we have his love and are obeying his commandments, we have his joy. You see, it's not all that stuff that brings joy. We all have our toys, we have our hobbies. We have things upon which our hearts are fixed and things that are tightly in our grip. But as we mature and as we get closer to the grave, the Lord's just pulling those things out of our grip. Right? And He's saying to us, it's me. It's me that brings you true satisfaction and joy. And to a church that has forgotten that, that has gone after the world, the Lord speaks to such a church as this through this letter. So we have His promise to the overcomer again. He is the victor. He has won. He is winning and He will win. And He calls His people and His churches to be overcomers as well. He says in verse 21, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, this is to be heard by all the churches, not just this one. It is to be applied by all the churches, not just this one. And here the promise is to sit down with Jesus on His throne, just as He sat on His Father's throne. In other words, to the one that does overcome, Jesus is waiting for him. Jesus is waiting for her so that he or her might come up to heaven and have a seat next to him on his heavenly throne and reign with Jesus forever and ever and ever as we see later in Revelation. Does that put things in proper perspective? Here and now versus then and there? It should. And oftentimes it will cost us something to be an overcomer. It should cost us something living in this world. I mean, Jesus himself went through the way of the cross to get his crown. And he hasn't promised anything different for us. So what does Jesus say? I think ultimately here Jesus is saying that we must look beyond the gifts to the giver. He calls us back, calls us back. Lord, our, my heart is prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it, right? The old hymn says. And so let me conclude with three applications from what we've seen here. First of all, especially because we live in the United States, probably the most wealthy nation in the world, at least for now, and because we live in the most affluent county in our state. Did, did you know that? Forsyth County is the most affluent county in the state of Georgia. Last I checked. Christians need to be careful in associating material prosperity with God's blessing. Christians need to be careful in associating 
material prosperity with God's blessing. These people had material prosperity. But they weren't living in the blessing of God, as we might say. And uh, again, there are those in Scripture whom the Lord blessed. There's Job who had more in the end than he had in the beginning. There's Abraham who was blessed. And Proverbs tell us that a godly man leaves an inheritance to his children and his children's children. Riches are not evil in and of themselves. God does bless us with things, but the pursuit of them brings about a warning from Scripture in 1 Timothy 6, 9. It says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which have drowned men in destruction and perdition. This problem is nothing new, is it? Israel of old. God told the Israelites, I've got the land of promise for you. The witnesses came back and talked about how great it was, even though there were those spies. But God warned them in Deuteronomy chapter 8, this is what's going to happen. He said there in Deuteronomy 8, verse 11, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by keeping His commandments, His judgments, and His statutes, which I command you this day, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver and your gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. What is the potential that comes along with spirit or physical prosperity? It is forgetting the Lord our God. May our prayer be the prayer of Agar in Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 8 where he says this, Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me. Second point of application here is, is may our, rather related to this positively, be sure that you are seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's the way our Lord puts it in Matthew 6.33. That's the priority for our lives. It's not that we may not enjoy some of these blessings. I mean, the blessing, you know, I, sh- I hate to keep bringing it up, but this is one of the things I struggled with is that stupid round ball and a golf club. Okay? That's the thing that can draw me away, just being obsessed with it, wanting to get better and better and better. And I'm never going to be a pro. I'm always going to hit it in the woods, okay? But it doesn't mean that I may not play it. It could mean that, hey, maybe sometimes in my life I need to cut it off and throw it far from me, right? If it keeps me from the Lord, maybe there's something in your life that pulls at you and tugs you away. Well, Jesus calls us back. Seek first His kingdom, His righteousness. And in that context, he's just talking about the daily necessities of life. He says, these things then will be added to you. See, Jesus, the living and true God, He has not left us Christians here on this earth to build our own kingdoms, but to build His kingdom. To be testimonies for the Lord Jesus. To be the martyrs as the saints are called in Revelation. Revelation. Martyrs and testimonies for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So where is your heart this evening? Where is your treasure, as Jesus puts it? Where your heart is there, or where where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money? That's how you can find out. Now, sometimes we have to spend our money on things we don't want to spend our money on. Taxes and all of that. And the bills. But the Lord teaches us this and calls us to take note. Well, then last, just take great care, beloved. Take great care to invest in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. A few weeks ago, the session gave me time off. My wife and I enjoyed a week down in the Warm Springs. I was going through different material and some old seminary notes. And I was jotting down things that just struck me. And one of the things that kept coming up was basically a reference to my uh, walk with the Lord, spending time with the Lord, communion with the Lord. These are things that are important for the pastor. And you might say, Kevin, you spend hours in the Word every week. That's right. And so a temptation for the pastor is that you know, these things just become part of ordinary daily life. And so I have to examine my heart and see where I am. And, and I have to take time away apart from my sermon prep, apart from any other preparation for the public ministry of the Word that I nourish my own soul and my own relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ privately and with prayer. See, Jesus talks about this man who found this pearl of great price. And when he found it, he sold all that he could, all that he had, so that he could go and purchase the pearl of great price. And who's the pearl? It's Christ Himself. That's the priority we should have with Him and seeking to be with Him and have communion with Him. We should think about the dividends of eternity in light of our short time here on earth. Why would we invest in this fading earth so much when we have eternity to spend with our Lord? How do you invest in your relationship with Jesus, you might ask? Well, you do it, as He says here, by repenting. Repenting of the dust that is on your Bible. Repenting of the crispy pages in your Bible. Repenting of your soft knees that have not been hardened because you do not pray on your knees enough before the living and true God. Confessing that to Him. And as He says in 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And then come to the Lord. As He says, dine with Him. For He's waiting for you to open the door. Is the door of your heart open, beloved, to the Lord Jesus Christ? May we be those who sup with Him and who dine with Him daily in His Word and in through, and through prayer. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for Your grace that there is always the invitation for us to come back when we stray that You love us enough to speak to us through Your Word 
a word through a sermon, through a pastor, through the reading of Scripture, through another believer, through a song. However it is you send it to us, we thank you for that. Thank you for your spirit. We pray, O Lord, that we would always, always desire and be willing and make the time to pull up a chair and to invite you to the table. We pray in your name. Amen. division in your family. Um, you need to remember what elsewhere Jesus says. He is our friend. He is our elder brother. We are new creatures in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are members of a new heavenly family. We have brothers and sisters in Christ from every ethnicity under the sun. If not now, that will be the case. And God himself is our heavenly father. And as we see those who did not speak out openly, but those Christians who are undercover, incognito Christians, will you speak openly for Christ in our day and time? Will you testify of His goodness, of His truthfulness, of His mercy, of His gospel, of His grace, of His wrath, of His justice? All truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Or... Do you fear man like so many of us can at times? If you fear man, remember Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 25. It says, the fear of man brings a snare. Fear will paralyze you. But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be saved. What is it that rightly identifies us with Jesus and enables us to proclaim the faith boldly. It is faith in the Lord. It is a trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for this passage of Scripture. Uh, We pray that You would help us to apply it, to put feet on it uh, from the heart, to represent You well, to bring honor and glory to You. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.